Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where I am also professor of psychology, epidemiology, and public health. Welcome to another Rudd Center webcast. I'm delighted to have you here, and I'd like to mention our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org that has a list of many other fine webcasts we've done. It's especially nice today for me to welcome Gary Foster, a friend of many years and a wonderful figure in the field of nutrition and obesity. He's currently the director of the Center for Obesity Research and Education and professor of medicine and public health at Temple University. Prior to that, he spent many years on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And Gary is, has been a leader in many aspects of the study of obesity and over the years has done work on metabolism, he's done work on diabetes, work on the treatment of obesity, and most recently work on prevention and community interventions, particularly in the schools. So Gary, welcome. I'm glad to have you here. Glad to be here, Kelly. Let me start off with the, the following question. You spent a number of years doing work on the treatments of obesity. How good are we at treating obesity? I think it's on your perspective. I think if you're the typical consumer in America, you would be pretty disappointed because most people want to lose about 30% of their body weight. I think we're reasonably good at producing weight losses that are relatively modest, about 5 to 8% of body weight. And I think that's the bad news. The good news is that those small weight losses can make a big difference, especially in the uh, prevention of conditions like type 2 diabetes. You know, I, re I remember one of the landmark studies that you did was asking people, how much weight, weight loss it would take them to accomplish before they even started a program to feel happy and satisfied and things like that. Can you right. say a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a study where we asked people a variety of different weights, not only what their goal weight was, but what a happy weight would be, what an acceptable, disappointed, and dream weight would be. And what people told us shocked us. They, they said that their, their goal weight was a 32% reduction in body weight. So they wanted to reduce their, their body weight by one-third. Um, and even an acceptable weight was a 25% weight loss. And most troubling is that a disappointing weight, a weight that could not be viewed as successful in any way, was a 17% weight loss. And that's about, you know, 7, 8, 10% better than what we can get with our best available non-surgical treatments. And I remember in this particular study that you published, you the actual weight losses you got were quite impressive. I mean, way pretty pretty much above what you generally get. And even then, people weren't very happy. That, that's exactly right. We got about a 16 kilo, 35 five-pound weight loss, and at the end of that 48-week period, 50% of people had not yet even reached the weight they thought was disappointing. So they're basically saying, it's been great working with you for 48 weeks, but I'm not even disappointed yet. I need to lose another 5, 10 pounds to even get disappointed. So it was a wake-up call for us. So let's talk about a transition you've made in your own career. It's been very interesting for me to watch this. And given that you had really become a world authority on the treatment of obesity, your work has made a transition much more into prevention now than, um, than into treatment. Can you explain why you made that transition and why you think prevention is so important? Well, I think it's for a couple reasons. One is that the, the in, it, obesity is a tough problem to treat. It's a chronic, refractory, prevalent condition, and I think the earlier we start, the better. And I still think that the research issues around treatment are important and they need to be investigated, um, but it, it, it's a tough nut to crack uh, in terms of really big advances. And um, so that was one motivating factor. I think the other is even if we had the best available treatments and that we could absolutely cure obesity, um, the number of people that we could treat at any one time is pretty limited. So when you look at a problem like obesity with its scope, 
and its epidemic, pandemic nature, um, the solution, if you will, isn't going to be treating 100 patients a month, a year, a week in any one clinic. So while treatment-based approaches are certainly important, uh, I think there's a bigger bang for the buck from a public health perspective if we try to do something environmentally that can affect everyone, both obese, lean, and in between, rather than saying we're going to wait till people are 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight before treating them. Okay. You've chosen to work in the schools and to focus on children in a specific age range. Let's talk about why that might be the case. Because if you think about preventing obesity, you could do a lot of things. You could work with pregnant mothers and try to you know, deal with the, the birth weight of the child. You could work with children at a very early age. You could work later in life you know, and take people who are 10% overweight and try to keep them from being 20% overweight. So a lot of different choices one could make about that. You've made a very strategic choice about intervening in the schools. Tell me why that is. I think a few reasons. One is schools is where the kids are. So um, we could go to after-school programs. We could go to preschool programs. We could go to YMCAs, and there will be kids there. But nearly everybody in this country and in most countries go to school. So if you want to go where kids are, go to schools. Secondly is it's a relatively constrained environment, and it's a place where you could look at the impact of policy-based interventions. And there's something appealing about that to me. I'm not so sure that we're going to get a lot of mileage out of finger-pointing at kids and their parents and to say, eat this and don't eat that. I think if we create an environment in which those choices are, in fact, easier, that they're almost natural, that we're not asking people to swim against the tide, that our results would be better. I think it's largely an untested hypothesis at this point. I think there are some recent studies that suggest those kind of approaches may be pretty effective, some others that suggest that they may not. And that's really what's uh, uh, really piqued my interest most recently. I'd like to come back in just a moment and ask you about some very creative work you've done on stores that are near schools. But before we do that, you've made a very fundamental um, taking a fundamental view of the world here that you're better off changing the environment that kids are exposed to rather than trying to educate them or, or educate their parents and things. P please explain why that would be. Because the typical solution that gets mentioned with obesity problem, especially put forward by people in government that support the food industry, is it's education, education, education. People just need to know more. And you've chosen a different approach. Why would that be? Yeah, I think there are certainly exceptions to this in some socioeconomic groups. But I think if you asked uh, 100 people on the street, uh, should you, if you wanted to be healthy, should you eat a banana or a banana split or should you eat a carrot or a carrot cake? The answer is pretty obvious. Uh, so I'm not saying that's the, the crux of nutrition education, but I'm not sure that we're deficient in nutrition education. Uh, and given the complexity in which people live, especially people who are most at risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes, that is the poor and certain uh, ethnic minority groups, do we really need to give them one other thing to sort of do mental gymnastics around in terms of counting calories and fat grams and carbohydrates and sodium and cholesterol? I think not. I think we have to make this infinitely easier and infinitely more simple. And we can do that by, I think, pressing some environmental levers that just make the process easier. I mean, we deal with parents on a daily basis uh, or with their kids who are in really tough neighborhoods and have complicated lives. And what's the likelihood of them even showing up for a nutrition education session? And if they did, I would argue they've got you know, bigger issues to worry about. So I think that more that we can make this almost a stealth approach or an approach in which the, there's not a lot of angst about it, there's not a lot of burden to do this, that it just is now easier to, to, to move more and to eat better, you know, I think we'll have better success. This is perfectly consistent with the way we address the issue at the Rudd Center. It seemed to me that 
if if somebody knows to eat less junk food, eat more fruits and vegetables, and be a little more physically active, you're 90% down the nutrition field and almost to the goal, almost to the end zone. And so then it really does become an issue, I think, like you just stated so nicely, not of giving more nutrition information, which just clouds the picture, but trying to create an environment where it makes it easier for people to make healthy choices. Yeah, and I think this even translates to clinical settings where we work with folks. Most of our work is not on telling people or suggesting to people what to do, but helping them how to do it. And I think one way to look at this from a public health perspective is that we're trying to change the environment so that how is easier, much like we would in a clinic-based approach, giving people problem-solving strategies and different tips and techniques. It's the same MO to me. It's focusing on the how, not the what. Let's talk about stores around schools. You're doing some very interesting intervention programs, in fact, leading a major national study on this at the moment about how the food environment and and physical activity environment can be improved around schools. You mentioned uh, in an earlier conversation we had about this very interesting and peculiar environment of stores that are right near schools. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, well, we were doing a study a few years ago, um, a CDC-funded study, and we noticed that kids were coming into the schools that we were intervening upon with, quote, these black bags. And they were black plastic bags, and they had lots of food in them, often four, five, six hundred calories. And when we sort of investigated a bit, where they were coming from is right across the street from schools. And they're often two, three, four corner stores within a few blocks of the school, and they sell food that's very cheap and also very calorically, de- very calorically dense. Um, so it, was, it sort of was a wake-up call for us that we can make all these environmental manipulations in the school we want, but they can be easily undermined by kids' ability to buy food that's cheap and tastes good and is high calorie uh, within just a few feet of the school. And, and these are actually little cottage industries, if you will, around schools because, you know, often their hours are, you know, seven to nine just when school's opening and three to five just when school's closing. So uh, it's clear what their target audience is. It's the kids who are coming before and after school. And, and that led us to think about intervening in corner stores and also to start to do some survey data around how often do kids shop at these stores, how much money do they spend. And we're surprised to find that about 50% of kids in poor neighborhoods spend uh, money each day, so they go to corner stores, and the average amount they spend is about $2 a day. It's really remarkable that this whole little industry has sprung up about getting kids to buy things to coming from and going, going to and from school. Now, you've done this, what I thought was a very clever intervention in Philadelphia around helping these stores change what they, they have available for kids and did it in concert with a, with a, um, a nonprofit organization in Philadelphia called the Food Trust. I'd like you to explain that if you wouldn't mind. And there are really two things that I think are especially interesting. One is it shows how beneficial it can be for academics to collaborate with people who are out there in the real community. And this food trust happens to be a very nationally prominent group for their innovation on changing the food environment. And then second, it would be nice to hear from you a little bit about what you actually did in this program. Yeah, well, we're, we're just sort of starting our full study right now, but in the pilots that we've done with the Food Trust, and you're right, that's a group that has a long history of, of really being aggressive around food access policies uh, in urban environments. And what we did, based on our observations in the school study, what the Food Trust did was to start to work with corner store owners and to see much the same way that they manipulated the environment in the school, could they manipulate the environment in the corner store? What does that mean? Could they get uh, store owners to serve one ounce bag of chips instead? 
instead of three ounce bag of chips? Could they get them to increase the proportion of beverages that were water versus sweetened beverages? Those kind of issues are the kind of sort of lever points that we used, uh, that the food trust used to try to make a difference. And from an outcome point of view, what we're looking at is how does that shift the energy balance or the amount of calories that kids are bringing out of the store in their bags. And our initial pilot data suggests that there may be a signal there that we may be able to move that. And now we're moving to a larger study funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 10 schools and their surrounding corner stores to look at do schools and stores who get this kind of intervention, both at the child level in the school environment, teaching kids, you know, here's a mock corner store and here are the criteria upon which you would buy a snack or not, or a beverage or not compared to schools who don't get that, and in addition, what happens uh, to their BMI? What happens just to the, the kind of choices they make in the store? So we're hoping that this combination of approach of making, again, an environmental manipulation in the corner store and a, a slightly educational intervention in the school can really uh, give us a combined bang for the buck that'll make a difference. So let's say I'm a store owner, and you come to me and say, we'd like to work with you on a program. And so I say back to you, the, the realities of my business are that the more I sell, the more I make. The things I sell the most of are what kids like the most, which are things high in sugar, fat, and salt. Um, and that the bigger portions I serve with things, the more money I make. Then how, how can I get around that fundamental economic reality and still do good for the community? It's a great point because I think we do have to address the fundamental economic reality and what our colleagues at the Food Trust do will look at their suppliers, whether they're national suppliers, local suppliers, or they're going to big wholesale chains and saying, okay, what could you buy that would give you a similar profit margin that would deliver fewer calories? And how could we incent as a program the choices of those foods. So if kids, if we can give kids the equivalent of uh, frequent flyer points or some chotsky or some toy or some anything that would incentivize them to try different foods that are more healthy for them, it will drive sales. So we just can't come in and say, we're gonna substitute carrot sticks for potato chips and see what happens to sales. Corner store owners won't be open to that, nor should we expect them to be. So I think as long as we approach them in a partnership fashion, as the Food Trust is, and saying, we understand the dilemma here, let's how think through it together, and how can we help maybe even drive business to that store because you're going to be selling healthy things and to preferentially reinforce kids for picking the healthier items. This is a really offbeat question, but it just popped into my mind. Do you think it would make a difference if um, they use clear bags rather than those black bags you can't see through? Do you think that the fact that, that the outside world would see what you bought and are carrying around in that bag would make a difference? I think in certain environments it would. I, I bet you in upper socioeconomic strata uh, neighborhoods, it might make a difference. I think in the neighborhoods that we're serving that there's no particular social stigma around eating high-calorie, high-fat foods. Okay. Another question I have is that uh, celebrity endorsements are used an awful lot to sell food to kids. And you think about um, how much a company like Pepsi-Cola uh, spends to get Beyonce and people like that to promote their foods. And Michael Jackson, if you go back to the old days, and then, then the sports stars and things like that. Do you think it would be helpful if you got celebrities to, for kids' point of view, to, for celebrities to endorse better foods? I think it absolutely would be. When we did focus groups for our national study, um, kids told us that one of the most uh, important influencers on what's cool 
what's hip, what, what they want to be, is what celebrities uh, do and what celebrities tell them to do. Uh, and this ranges from everything from fashion to clothes to beverage to, you know, cars, whatever. Um, so I, I think it's just the nature of the beast in terms of kids being highly suggestible to what celebrities want. And I think celebrities could take a lead role here in advocating healthier lifestyles in terms of eating, physical activity. Um, I think it would, I mean, it's not tested, but it's hard to believe that it wouldn't have an influence in eating and activity like it has in every other aspect of an adolescent's life. One of the, one of the more dramatic things I think that's been clear from this work you've done in the schools, which is really terrific, is just what you found before you ever intervene with kids, just measuring how much they weigh and what their metabolic parameters look like and things like that. How stark is the situation? I mean, what do the kids in Philadelphia look like? And it's not like they're different than anybody else, but what are American kids like when you start to look at their health? It is pretty bleak. We looked at the kids who were in fourth through sixth grade for a study that'll come out in a couple months in pediatrics. And uh, what we found is that 49% of kids were above the 85th percentile. So that's the cutoff for overweight for children. And 25% of those kids were obese. So we, if you look at the gradations of a little bit overweight and a lot overweight, there are more kids in this country who are more overweight or the most overweight than a little bit overweight. So we're really at the extremes already. And this is in fourth through sixth grade. This isn't in high school. This isn't in college. This isn't in the people's 20s or 30s. So to me, it's a, it's a really significant wake-up call to say, you know, maybe fourth to sixth grade is even too late to intervene if you already have 25% of the kids at the 95th percentile. I don't think that's the case. I think we need to interview when, when we can and make sure kids are cognitively aware and they can make some choices. But uh, on the other hand, it's a pretty bleak picture. And uh, the most troubling thing is not just that kids are overweight, but what those kids will look like 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Um, they're going to get diabetes sooner. They're going to have high blood pressure issues sooner. They're going to have disability issues sooner. It's, it's a very bleak, I think, social picture, economic picture, and medical picture. It, it sounds very discouraging when you look at it from that point of view. But on the other hand, um, you've had some pretty interesting results from the work you've done so far. Are you optimistic about what can be done through the schools? I am. I, I think um, why, why I'm optimistic is there are some recent studies that have shown that some pretty simple policy changes in terms of the type of beverages consumed in a school, the type of foods that are allowed in the school may make a difference. Uh, in this upcoming study uh, funded by the CDC and with our colleagues from the Food Trust, we're able to show just over a two-year period, instead of 14% of kids who weren't overweight becoming overweight, were able to have that rate to about 7%. And that's without touching physical education at all. So I'm hopeful about it. And then we have this big study now uh, called the Healthy Study, funded by uh, the NIH, the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Disease, that's really going to look at 42 schools across the country and look at a really aggressive approach to food service, corner, uh, not corner course, food service, uh, PE classes, uh, school stores, uh, fundraisers, and things like that to really see if these kind of really aggressive policies make a difference. And I, I'm optimistic that they can. I'm not sure that um, you'll be able to answer this question because it's, it's fairly complicated. And, um, but let me ask it anyway and see. The, um, the, in the best of all worlds, you do interventions that are comprehensive, just like the ones you're talking about, where you deal with food and physical activity at the same time. 
but in in some schools they may not have the resources to do something comprehensive or the time and things like that and they might choose to focus on either one or the other the activity or the food is there any way of knowing where you'd get the biggest impact what if if one of those things is contributing to obesity more than the other I, I think you're right. It's complicated, and I'm not sure I can answer it from a causal point of view, but I think from an intervention point of view, in terms of the the effort that we, would be required, I think it's easier to work on the intake side of the equation. And this is true for adult obesity and childhood obesity as well. It's a lot easier to decrease your intake by 500 calories a day as an adult to lose a pound a week than it is to increase your energy expenditure by 500 calories. So it's a simple behavioral angst uh, perspective rather than a causal mechanism. Um, we could probably argue for a long time about what's the causal mechanism. Is it the decrease in activity or the increase in intake that's led to the epidemic? My point of view is it's a very interesting academic question, but if we're going to move um, BMI, that probably intake is the way to go. Now, that's got some repercussions that people feel restricted, and so I think that's why we have to look for broad environmental change rather than imposing that you're not allowed to eat this forever. But in certain environments like schools, I think it is appropriate to set policy, just like schools set policy around a lot of other healthy behaviors. Given that you're out there in the real world on the front line with schools, and I've heard you talk about this, the principals have a lot to deal with in schools. They've got safety issues and all sorts of other realities to contend with. Why would they be interested in doing something on this topic, or do you have to craft some kind of a program that doesn't require a lot of change from the school? I think principals are ultimately interested in their kids and they're interested in their communities and they see obesity in their neighborhoods, they see particularly type 2 diabetes among uh, communities that are particularly Latino or African American. So I think they want to do the right thing, but I think the reality is that with No Child Left Behind and with a lot of other academic pressures, they're evaluated, their performance is evaluated on test scores. and. You know, pee doesn't get tested. How you do in food service doesn't get tested. So that's sort of the dilemma. And I think what we have to be able to do when we, when we evaluate such programs is to collect enough data to say, if this program works, this is what it costs, this is what it does to test scores, it keeps them neutral or improves them, and to really give the complete package. Because if this is just sort of a, a one-and-done approach that we show that there is some effect of an intervention, but it can't be implemented, then I'm not sure it's very relevant in the long term. So. Uh, I guess what I want to say is I'm very sympathetic to principal's point of view that they can't do everything. On the other hand, if we can test some, some different uh, policy-type interventions that turn out to be effective and we can collect supporting data at the same time, then I think we can make a stronger case for their ultimate implementation. Let me end with the following question. Now, if I were sitting in your chair and somebody was about to ask me, ask me this question, I would respond by saying we don't really know yet. We have to collect more data. But let me ask it anyway and just see if you have any thoughts, any sort of, you know, brainstorming about this. There are a lot of things one could do from a public policy point of view to deal with obesity. Even if you just focus on schools, you could get rid of the trans fats. You could put in a fruit and vegetable program. You can uh, increase the amount of time for PE. You can get rid of the soft drinks and machines and things like that. The legislator came to you and said, you know, I'd like to pass a law to help with childhood obesity. And, and you know, I'd, I'm interested in the schools. What would you say the legislator could do? It's a great question. Um, 
And again, you're a superb scientist, and so it's perfectly fine to say we just don't know. Well, I, and, and but, yeah. but the question is, then, do you have any guesses about what that answer, yeah. or, or what kind of information needs to be collected so a legislator would have an answer to that? Let me answer in a couple ways. I think we don't know. I think that it, it's very popular to say if we had billions and billions of dollars, we put it into the prevention of obesity. I would argue we don't have data to say what strategies really work from a prevention point of view yet, or at least not very definitive data. Uh, having said that, I'd be less inclined to do policy around things that are calorie neutral. So if you're going to change the quality of fats, now that may be good in and of itself and for broad health impacts, it's not going to impact childhood obesity. It's got to affect intake or expenditure. And from earlier conversation, my suggestion would be to make some impact that get kids to consume fewer calories. I mean, very simple-minded approach is that if we could somehow reduce portions of everything, good, bad, and indifferent foods, by 5%, it make a whopping impact from a public health point of view. How you do that's a whole different question, how you legislate it, what kind of policy it would look like, what are the repercussions. But my point is that simplicity counts a lot and that a small change would go a long way. And I think you're going to get a better bang for buck on the intake side than you would on the activity side. Um, the third part is, well, how would you address this? I think you do the kind of trials we're doing now. You sort of throw the kitchen sink at it, if you will. Let somebody else figure out what exact component worked. But I think we're at this point, we don't even have a great fund of knowledge around the, sci the science around effective preventive prevention interventions, and I think we need to start there. Again, there are some signals. It's not like there aren't any signals in the literature about what might be likely targets, but I don't think that there's a comprehensive, uh, or at least many comprehensive programs that have been shown to be effective. And once we have those in the right populations, uh, the highest risk populations, then I think we'll be able to move in the right direction. Now, I know I just promised that was the last question, but I just got to throw one more idea out there. Sure. It seems to me that there, the window opens to deal with a public health issue or any kind of issue for that matter only so long, and then people get tired of it, and the interest goes away. The interest in childhood obesity is really at a very high level at this moment, and there's been a lot of media legislators around others. I don't know if it's peaked yet, but it might, it might have, and if it hasn't peaked yet, it probably will be. It will peak at some point not too far down the road. So the question is, since the door is open, the window's open now, and people are interested, legislators call us all the time, I'm sure you get a lot of inquiries too about this, and say, what do we do? You know, I'm in St. Louis, and I'm a city council person, or I'm a state legislator in Wyoming, and I want to do a law, what do you do? So you can take this, the, the sort of tried and true scientific approach and say, well, there aren't any data, and we don't really know, and we need more studies and things like that. Or you can say, the door's open, the window's open, and it's only there for so long, so we have to make our best guess. How do you handle that kind of tension between being a scientist but knowing that there are people ready to take action and they, they're going to get advice from somebody? Why not, why not give them the best advice you can? And if that's the case, then what would you advise at this moment? Yeah, I think you're right. There's a natural tension between the scientist and me wants to say do a randomized controlled trial and isolate one variable at a time. But the likelihood is that one variable will not impact BMI or this obesity epidemic. And I think it's just uh, short-sighted and, and overly academic to say, you know, we don't have data on every piece of this puzzle, so we're not going to try anything. Um, if a legislator were to ask, I think you'd want to try as many things as possible at once and let somebody else figure out what worked and what didn't with the principle of you want to do no harm. So if things look like they might work uh, and they have a low likelihood of harming anyone, um, why wouldn't you do them? Mm -hmm. And I think given the, 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 
the severity of this epidemic, uh, its scope, uh, and its really significant consequences, this isn't the time to do a lot of academic navel-gazing about what kind of trial might we do, uh, what about this particular nuance. I think we need to act with the principle of do no harm, uh, but also with what's likely to do good given what we know. I, I think you're right, the window is only going to be open for so long, and I think we need to act uh, now. That doesn't mean we don't collect data, but that we, we really try to be aggressive and collect data and create a series of natural experiments that allow us to answer this more empirically. Okay, that sounds good. Um, our guest today was Gary Foster, Professor of Medicine and Public Health and Director of the Center for Obesity Research and Education at Temple University. Gary, thank you so much. My pleasure, Kelly. Uh, keep your eye on work that Foster and colleagues are doing and, and, and will be doing in future years because it's really groundbreaking and I think leading the field and in, in intervening in the communities and schools. And it's just so important to trying to deal with this problem of childhood obesity. As I mentioned before, this is done as part of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our website is www.yalerudcenter.org. And if you go to that website, there are many, many resources um, and also a, a series of webcasts like this that you're welcome to listen to, a free email newsletter and more. Thank you very much.